Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. If you've already been to the movies and seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know uh, that that is part of its soundtrack. Soundtrack soundtrack that really kind of throbs through the movie, sometimes bursting out of car radios, sometimes uh, somebody drops uh, a phonograph needle onto a track. Uh, but all the way through, we are bombarded with the music of 1969. Uh, there's uh, Neil Diamond. Uh, we're going to be talking about Tarantino's new movie. Later in the show, time permitting, we have other topics like uh, do purses uh, convey, are you more powerful if you don't carry a purse? I guess that's is that, is that how we would define the topic? Something like that. Uh, is yelling on the way out uh, and um, probably the most puzzling one of all. The logic that determines who sleeps on which side of the bed and the fact that some people are able to switch off from side to side. All right. So those are more, you know, things from life as opposed to things from culture. Joining us in studio right now, Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Susan Bigelow, a librarian, a columnist for CT News Junkie, uh, and a science fiction fantasy novelist who has something, a novelette, a novella. Something's coming out soon. Yes, right? it is. It is a novelette, which is the sort of between a short story and a novella. Mm-hmm. Um and it's coming out. It's called uh, My Plastic Heart, My Metal Hand. It's got lots and lots of robots in it. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you like robots and people who become robots, it's probably good for you. It's going to be out in about a week or so at uh, thefuturefire.net. So stay tuned for that. All right. Um, I should say also, you know, in the NFL, they used to have players who were called two-way players. Yeah, they could play offense and defense. I believe Susan is the only two-way player at WNPR. She's on the wheelhouse and on the nose, right? There's nobody else who does that. You're the I only don't one. think so. I think you are the only one. All right. So, um, Well, John Dankowski. John Dankowski. That's true. Yeah. Um, so um, maybe we should just begin uh, by setting this up a little bit. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, tells the story of two almost umb- umbilically joined uh, men of a certain age, uh, one of them, played by Leo DiCaprio, is a movie star uh, named Rick Dalton, who is now kind of degrading into a TV star and then degrading from there into the heavy uh, on TV shows, no longer the star. Uh, and uh, he is umbilically joined to a guy named Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt, who has been his stuntman for many years and now, partly because he's semi-unemployable as a stuntman, is kind of a glorified and very glamorous gopher uh, for his uh, great friend. Uh, You're going to hear both of them in this clip along with Kurt Russell who is like a gaffer or something. He's something on a movie set. Uh, He's on a movie set where he's in a position – or a TV set, excuse me, a TV set where he's in a position to decide who gets to work as a stuntman. So you'll hear the three of them talking. Hey, Randy. (laughs) 
Perfect. So you're still with Rick, huh? Still here. You in there? Yeah, just knock. Just, just look, just, just just put them in the wardrobe, all right? What's it gonna hurt? Then if you need them, you got them, all right? <laughs> then I gotta have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant, and man, she's a bitch. I just don't, right, please. Look, I... look Randy, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer's no, the, the answer's no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know? And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey and, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a... Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just, yeah. just happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. And I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. You know, uh, we'll sort of get to how we feel about this movie in general. But Irene, there's sort of an interesting dynamic there in in, uh, Leo DiCaprio's character kind of pleading the case uh, of his friend, the stuntman. And, you know, and almost in this kind of St. Sebastian way, you can do anything to him. You can hurt him any way you want, throw him off a building. Uh, He seems as though he's the one in control and that Brad Pitt's character is kind of this pathetic character who would suffer any wound or indignity uh, just to be able to have a job on a set. Although when we get to know the relationship a little bit better, that's not exactly how the power structure works. You know, the calm, contented, confident one is not the one who's so in control in, in this conversation. It's an interesting inversion of their relationship because it's true. Brad Pitt seems to be in more contr- more in control, but but he also really needs the job. So there's this like plaintiveness about uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Jack character, but at the same time, he's, you know, we were think we've been thinking about the macho code. He's sort of upholding the macho code by, by fighting for his friend. Right. So we have to talk a little bit about this movie. I think we're all in different places on it. Um, uh, and, and we're somewhat divided. And the conversations that have gone on off the air in the forms of lengthy emails have been very interesting and uh, pretty spirited at times. So, Susan, why don't you get us started? I mean, overall, this movie didn't really land all that well for you. It didn't. There were some things I really did like. I thought the acting was great. I thought that there were some really standout performances here. I thought the atmosphere was fantastic. What it, what it really lacked for me was a plot, a coherent plot that sort of st- stuck the whole way through. I felt like it was a lot of different episodes that didn't necessarily connect, even at the kind of climax of the movie. It felt very disjointed. Sometimes the pacing, I think, was a little bit off. Uh, it was sort of supposed to be a slow movie, but every once in a while it sort of jumped. Like there's a moment where it jumps a very large amount of time forward, and it's very, very, it's jarring. I feel like there wasn't a lot of character progression. I feel like the movie didn't really understand what it wanted to be about it's like a, it's a whole bunch of different things it's kind of a buddy picture and kind of not it's kind of about the manson killings and it's kind of not it's kind of about hollywood during a certain period and it's also kind of not it's a whole lot of different things it tries to do a lot of things at once and it doesn't quite succeed in my mind 
I'm going to sort of try to stagger the um, responses a little bit. So I'll go, that means I have to go to Irene next, I think. Okay. Well, I mean, that's just making me think. It's so funny what we, how we decide whether we like or how we – is it is it a decision whether we like something or not? I'm not sure, you know, because I – I could agree with everything Susan just said, but at the same time, I liked it, you know, and so I sort of I sort of believed in the I mean, I think I liked it more than you did, Susan. And I I believed in the fantasy of it, the once upon a time dot 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 side of it completely sucked me in and I sort of went with it. So that's my first reaction. Okay, Bill. So I think there are two sort of there are two Quentin Tarantino's. There's the Quentin Tarantino who I recognize as a very accomplished filmmaker and someone who does have a real vision. He's a real auteur and and is a great craftsperson and storyteller and very, very talented and I, and I don't want to diminish that. But the other Quentin Tarantino – you know, I went to the Oxford English Dictionary and I looked up the word problematic and there was no text at all. It was just a picture of <laughs> Quentin Tarantino smirking. So, you know, there's he's, he's such a problematic, I think, filmmaker and person that that bleeds into the films and it bled into this film for me. I also think that speaking of two – Wait, Quentin, could you just say why why he's problematic because like, you well, don't know what to think? I think there's a range of issues in terms of his representation of women, his representation of people of color, um, his representation of violence and how he, he – it's, it's fine to, 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 to represent violence. It's fine to represent misogyny. But what is your stance on it? Are you – critiquing it? Are you endorsing it? Are you reveling in it? I think all of that gets very blurry and in does his that, films But does that me. make you enjoy the film? Or like, no, it, he, it, it distances oh, me so from the film. Oh, so it's not that your reaction is problematic. It's no, more it's, 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 it's what he's putting mm. on the screen. Okay. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that the movie is, in a lot of ways, is not self-aware. It's not aware of these things that are, that are a problem. Like, for example, it's a very white movie. Um, there are very few people of color in it. Only one that I know of, and he gets beat up. He does. Um, I think that there is like a couple of side characters uh, who we like, see in the background. But again, I, I was hoping that the movie would engage with that somehow. And sort of the, the treatment of women, the women, the lines that women have, um, especially at the ending of the movie, which we won't spoil, but there's you know, some stuff that happens to two women at the end of the movie, which is just... It, it's, you can feel a lot of different ways about it, and I don't know if I feel all that good about it. Um, but this stuff that I was hoping that the movie would kind of engage with more and feel just even a little fraction of a, of a, a bit aware of um, of what it was doing, and maybe take a tiny stand on it, just a little bit. I think we were saying um, when we were talking about this in email that we were we thought that the movie didn't have a lot to say, and I, I still think that that's true, and even in places where maybe maybe it needed to. Um, I will say that, as I've expressed even in the promo for this show, I don't like Quentin Tarantino movies very much. I'm not a fan. If the entire Tarantino canon didn't exist, my life would be essentially the same. And I couldn't say the same thing 
you know, about, I don't know, the Cohen brothers or Wes Anderson or Alfred Hitchcock. Talk about a problematic person uh, with, pro- with issues with women. But, True. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I will defend Tarantino that, yeah, this is a pretty white movie. But, I mean, he's not a very white director, uh, whether it's Jackie Brown or Django Unchained. I mean, he's uh, somebody who, who, who ordinarily – uh, includes a lot of people of color in his storylines. Um, and, and I was also, you know, th- this is an odd movie in the sense that it's about Hollywood circa 1969. It's about two really kind of, you know, super good looking guys, especially Brad Pitt. Um, and it's really not about sex at all. I mean, in terms of people actually well, making sexy time. Except. Except. <laughs> my theory. Yeah. Oh yeah, your theory is that they're into um, which, each other, which, which I don't think is a spoiler no. because it's not it's 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 not acknowledged in the film in any way. If anything, it's subtext or it's something I'm laying onto it. But I think it's very much about a film of these two guys who are in love with each other, or at least, or at least one, one of them, one with the other. Uh, yeah. Cliff, I think, is in love with. Um, with uh, Rick. 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 Yeah. Rick. So, yeah. yeah, Cliff is Brad Pitt. Uh, Rick is. And that's uh, why I think he actually sticks around, not for the employment. Yeah. But because of the relationship between the two of them. Yeah. There's a lot of sort of sublimating of feelings, mm. I think, in the movie. Yeah. Um, there, although there are a couple of great emotional moments. So, again, yes. this movie's got so many contradictions. Yeah. Well, you know, in our email exchanges, Jonathan McNichol said, he posed the question, what if you took the Manson stuff out of it? And in some ways, it's almost like two movies. It's the, it's, mm. the, it's the movie about the Manson stuff, and then it's the movie about the relationship between these guys. And I, I think that's an interesting question. And it, was, and it certainly was long enough to almost have been two movies. And I think that might be part of what you're reacting to, Susan, is a lot of it had to get mushed together in order to make it one movie. We should say it's a very long movie. Uh, that's my. I, I liked this movie a lot, and I kind of luxuriated in this obsessively curia, curated recreation of Hollywood uh, in 1969. And I, I guess it's really. I heard or read somewhere that, for example, if you hear somebody saying something on a car radio, they were saying it yeah. on that mm-hmm. day on, at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this—that's to me—that is uh, a little bit of obsessive compulsive directing. But uh, but more power to him if he wants to do it. But I, I loved the, the look of this movie. It is, I think, also the least assaultive uh, of all Quentin Tarantino movies. I mean, it's not that there isn't which any, is saying something. Yeah, considering. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, there isn't that much blood or gore or anything like that. There is some. Uh, you will be treated to some uh, at least one massive explosion of violence. But you know, compared to how they mostly are, it's not like that. It is more about relationships. It's more about people dealing with aging. Uh, it's more uh, about people dealing with their hopes and aspirations and the kind of town that Hollywood kind of eternally has been too. When it's done with you, it's done with you and there's not that much you can do about that. I, I do think one of the interesting figures in this and one of the controversial figures and maybe we can get now into some of the ways that there have been detractions. So we see, and I think it's pronounced this way, I, only I just found that out, Margot Roby. I've been saying Robbie for years, but I think it might be Roby. Uh, she plays Sharon Tate, the young Sharon Tate. Uh, we see her a lot. She doesn't talk a lot. Uh, we see her in one striking uh, series of cuts where uh, there are kind of two storylines unfolding at once and we see her in a movie theater watching herself on screen in a Dean Martin, Matt Helms movie. And actually Margot Robbie is watching the real Sharon Tate too, although 
Tarantino's done this incredible production stuff where he's been able to, you know, make some of his contemporary actors really look like they're in some TV show in 1969. He doesn't try it here. We just see the real Sharon Tate. But you see a young girl who's not well known. She's so not well known. She's had to kind of talk her way into the movie theater by pointing to the poster and proving that she she might actually be one of the characters in the movie. She's just sort of glorying. She's in the early part of her career. She's These other two guys are kind of at the end. You know, the, mm-hmm. Hollywood is running out of things to do with them. Uh, she's sort of at the beginning and watching all of that hope uh, and excitement as she's watching herself on screen uh, is, I think, you know, one of the more poignant moments in the film. But now I'll turn the rest of you loose on this. One of the criticisms is this is the only prominent female character and she doesn't really have a fully developed speaking role anyway. There is one other female character who I thought was great and that was uh, the little girl yes. on, the set of, yeah. uh, on the set of Lancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the conversation that she has with Rick uh, is just so good. And whoever this girl is, and I, her name escapes me now. Uh, whoever she is, she's phenomenal. She's did a did a. We know you're not job. supposed to call her pumpkin puss anyway. No, we're not supposed <laughs> to call her pumpkin. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that that conversation again of somebody who's at the very beginning and someone who takes their craft very seriously, and um, apparently that's a send up of Leo when he was younger. Well, yeah, she she's a method actor. You yeah. know, she's an eight or, eight or nine yeah. year old method actor who who spews the, this kind of stuff. And the relationship between the two of them as it emerges is is actually kind of cute. And you don't see cute in Tarantino movies a lot. But but what else? Like I mean, what else yeah. do we think of this? The the well, Sharon Tate. Uh, the, the Sharon Tate. Th- I mean. To me, that scene, like the reason why it was so when she went into the movie theater and, and uh, we, she didn't say a lot, but her face said a lot. And what it said is ambition, you know, and I just felt like it was such an expression of her ambition. Like, OK, I'm really proud of myself as an ac- actor and I'm going to keep going. You know, the sky's the limit. And so to me, she it's it expressed a lot. It, it didn't feel like, oh, they're not giving her very many lines as much as it felt like. She has some really clear, interesting ambition. Yeah, I will say, and and maybe this is contradicting what I said earlier a little bit. Um, I think Margot ha- Roby, we're supposed I, to say. I think I, okay. I, I think she does a fabulous job with the role, mm-hmm. and um, that that I think Sharon Tate comes off really well in this movie, actually, because there is something incredibly. Um, appealing about her naivete and how thrilled she is to see her name on a marquee and to be able to go into the theater and watch herself. That that was kind of a high point of the movie for me. And and I do think it's it's a part um, where um, both the actor playing the role and the role were dealt with in a kind of extra dimensional sensitive because it's kind of what could have been you know we 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 all know what happened when we see that name Sharon Tate you know <laughs> in the real world and so yeah well we well, also we know that eventually i mean she she might have had some kind of career but then even faster than Hollywood tired uh, of, of the Leo DiCaprio's character, Hollywood would tire of her because women have even shorter lifespans usually on the screen than do men. And I do think there's a lot of things here about aging and being supplanted, supplanted by the younger generation. Oh, sure. And, and Tarantino, yeah. because – 
he is who he is and everything that he does has to be this kind of meta joke. I don't know if you noticed how many Hollywood sort of offspring there are in this movie, including uh, Rumor Willis, uh, the uh, daughter of Bruce Willis and Demi Moore uh, is in it. Uh, Ethan Hawke's daughter has a little piece uh, in it. Um, Andy McDowell's daughter, whose name I'm blocking right now, but she actually has a big career going. Is it Qual- Margaret Qualler's? Whatever her name is. Qualley. Qualley, yeah. yeah. Who's, who, by the way, is, well, I'll mention her during endorsements, but she's mm-hmm. terrific. She has a big role in it, but she's Andy McDowell's daughter. I mean, there are all these uh, yeah. kids of uh, big stars in it, and I think there's a a little joke that he's saying, which is, I, don't, I actually don't want any of, the, any of their parents anymore, but yeah, I can find something for the kid to do. And it's also a, a love letter to Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? Because oh, absolutely. In its dreaminess, in its fairy tale ish, and in, you know, kind of uh, romanticizing in some ways that era while also alluding to the dark part of it. There's something else that I wanted to uh, respond to real fast is that. Not everybody, though, does know what happens to Sharon Tate. I mean, if you're watching this movie, you probably do. But the Manson killings were 50 years ago. 50 years ago, exactly, yes, next Friday. Exactly. Can't believe 50 that was 50 years. years. And yeah. yeah uh, People probably know Manson. Yes, but, but they don't know Maybe her. none they of don't. the and other I details. Will, I will admit, I didn't know. Oh, okay, sorry. I didn't sorry. know. I had to look yeah. it up when I got home. I was like, mm. oh, oh. Um, and... That changed the viewing experience yes. for me, absolutely. Mm. Um, because, and then I had to go back and reevaluate things. It's like, oh, well, this is also, you know, maybe there's this feeling of dread that's sort of be building up just seeing this person here. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is again, this is something else that Tarantino has done throughout the entire movie. Is he? He's not. He's not sort of letting you in at all. If you if you're not familiar with this world and you're not um, you're not familiar with all the things that are going on around, uh, like like the Manson killings, then he's not going to help you out at all. Uh, he expects you to be on his yeah. level the whole time. Yeah, I, I, you know, we don't. There, we are not. We will not spoil anything for you, and so uh, we're not going to tell you what's done with all all of this. But um, I will say that as because I don't trust Tarantino, and I mean I have all of Bill's issues. Uh, with Tarantino, they just didn't really flourish in, in this movie. This movie, I just I thought because it really is about relationships, and because I was really enjoying the aesthetics and the craft of it, uh, I was for once okay. But I was very concerned as the movie developed because Tarantino is constantly, as we know, winking and grinning at us through anything that he does. You know, no matter how dire and violent things go, he also has this kind of amused detachment from everything that he's doing, and and everything is layered joke. And I was thinking because I was 14 years old at the time of these murders, so I remember them quite well. Um, he he can't possibly – I mean what would the survivors of this think if he included this in one of his winking jokes, uh, which I think he inv- avoids doing. Again, we don't want to spoil anything. But uh, – and so – As I had mounting trepidation about how this was going to be used, I I ultimately felt like he, you know, he found something to do that was different from what I was worried about. It was it was absolutely different than what I expected. That part threw me for a loop, which again, go see it. We won't tell you what that is. Um, But it was not Inglorious Bastards, for example. Mm -hmm. Right? It wasn't that kind of broad almost comedy in its approach. I mean, there are funny bits in it, but I think you're right that overall, that's not the tone of the film. The tone of the film is much more dreamy and, you know, just as some of you have pointed out, it's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. 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 
We, yeah. I don't know if anybody else wants to say anything else about the acting. I, I will say I've become just a huge admirer of Leo DiCaprio. I mean, I guess that's kind of saying something pretty obvious. But at this point, every performance that he gives, I really find um, very, very intriguing. He's usually, I think, at his best when he's under terrible amounts of pressure as a character, right? So in The Departed, you know, I mean, he's just coming apart the entire um, movie. Same with Gangs of New York. I mean, I could name three or four others that are like this. In this case, he's coming apart, apart in a different way, you know? He's he's had a drink from the cup of fame. He's been a guy who would carry a very successful series. And we should say that uh, – Susan, you kind of alluded to this – that like everything else in this movie except these two guys is – a real thing, you know. These are real TV series and people playing actual actors, and and it's made as real as it possibly could. But I just thought in this one, he's mainly playing a guy who's realizing he can't quite cut it anymore the way that he used to. That's the pressure he's under, which is a very different kind of pressure. And I thought he yes, played that really well, definitely. And he has to keep up the illusion that that he's going on, you mm. know, combined with that inner knowledge. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really beautiful thing that he acted. Yeah. yeah. That, that duality. I think we should, it's also worth pointing out that uh, Luke Perry is in this and this mm-hmm. is, this is his final film. I believe that this is, there's nothing else. As far as we know. Yeah. Yeah. And, that was a little jarring. And mm-hmm. I, I also want to say that, you know, Brad Pitt, I think has over the years emerged as, I mean, obviously he's a very pretty face and now he's a kind of, Got that kind of Redford. Somebody said he had those kind of Redford crags and creases uh, in, in his face. But he's um, – I, I have found him over the years to be a kind of – I mean I, I just rewatched uh, A River Runs Through It where he's such a beautiful thing in that movie, right? He's just uh, this golden boy fishing and you know, and uh, marked for tragedy. Uh, but I, I think he's a guy who really does a lot of very interesting things. And as he's aged as an actor, he's more than just a, a pretty guy with his shirt off. He's He's, you know, although he's that in this movie, but I think he delivers quite a performance. I think he does Definitely. a great job. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, and this is all part of my my big theory, which is not really a big theory. Um, he reminded me a lot of Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of that same kind of, um, you know, there's not a lot that's being – uh, expressed in a very you know outwardly way, but there's so much going on underneath that. But I think also, Bill, there's a way in which the the semi homoerotic pairing of these guys it also it predicts a little. A little bit the movies that are going to follow 1969, right? We're going to go into true, Easy true, Rider, Butch Cassidy yeah. and the Sundance yes, Kid. Yes. We're going to have a whole bunch of movies about guys who are more into each other really uh, than they are into women uh, and whose bond uh, may be a little bit cagely homoerotic. Uh, absolutely. And uh, by the way, I noticed in the clip that you played, um, the, um, the, per, uh, the Kurt Russell character says, oh, you're still with Rick? <laughs> You're still with Rick? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we, perhaps on but that it's note. Also yeah. it's, yeah. also sure. it's also friendship. It's also friendship. And so there's it, you know, friendship yeah. too. You I know. know I'm laying that on it. Yeah. It's not textually in the film at all. No, nope, yeah. but I see it too. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So well, we'll have to stop there because there's so much more to say. Uh, but go see the movie. It's, uh, go see it with some people and then you can argue about it afterwards. It's a fun movie. Oh, we didn't even get into Caitlin Flanagan and Justice Critics. All right. Well, oh, I'll yeah. It's well, an interesting article that we all had different reactions to, yeah, so, but it's worth reading. Right. Caitlin Flanagan in The Atlantic writing about this movie as Tarantino's most transgressive movie. That's how you'll find it. That's in the title. I went for a walk on a winter's day 
All right, so I'm here uh, doing the news with Susan Bigelow, Irene Papoulis, and Billy Usman. So, but I should just say, I don't know what it was this week. I was having a hard time just keeping up with my work. So I was really terrible in terms of helping to plan the show. So meanwhile, the panelists and Jonathan McNichol, they came up with these topics, which I initially looked at and thought, I have nothing to say about any of these. But then it turns out I have lots to say about all of them. So we're going to begin. I don't know how many we'll get to, but we're going to begin with an article from The Cut by Lisa Miller. It's called Men Know It's Better to Carry Nothing. Uh, it essentially makes the argument that freedom from having to carry stuff in, for example, a purse uh, is a form of power. So, uh, Irene, I'm going to get you uh, going or have you get us going. All right. Well, um, freedom from having to carry stuff you, is a you, form you, of You don't have power. to start there. You can even start with the, uh, the, the person you know whose okay. boyfriend wouldn't let her carry All right. Anything. So, I, I, yeah, okay. I had this friend um, – years ago who had this new boyfriend and he was like a sort of fancy boyfriend who had a lot of money and stuff and everybody was very impressed that he was her boyfriend and but she said she we, we were going somewhere and she had luggage she said oh i can't bring this luggage because he doesn't like it when i carry a lot of luggage because he thinks it's tacky he thinks it just doesn't look right i have to have it shipped some other way or have somebody else carry it or something like that and i was so shocked i couldn't believe that anyone would 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 have a problem with somebody carrying luggage. But sometimes when I don't have any luggage, it just feels so good and so free. And I've I've started to try to not carry luggage that much, but I have other theories about it. So part of the argument, uh, Susan, is if you have a purse, it means that you have stuff in it to clean up spills and take care of uh, uh, other problems that people who don't carry purses, parentheses, men, close parentheses, uh, therefore are not similarly equipped to deal with and therefore don't have to deal with. Uh, I mean, the the article makes a number of different issues, but uh, arguments, but it keeps coming back to that for some reason. And that's interesting because my purse just is full of garbage. Um, <laughs> I don't. I have like some mints in there. Maybe I've got like, uh, I have a battery for my phone. I have just a, an assortment of random things. But I also do have some helpful things as well that I feel like I need to carry with me. Um, and I, it's it's such an it's such an odd thing to think about. Um, I'm trans, so I've lived in I've lived in both gender roles. I've lived as a man. I've lived as a woman. Um, and I've uh, I, I've, I can remember. Uh, not carrying a purse and just walking around without one, and it felt totally normal. And now I cannot leave the house without it. I feel like I'm missing something, that I need to be carrying something because of what if something happens. And it's it's a complete change in mindset. And there's so much weird gender stuff going on with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just how you get socialized as a woman sort of immediately in this society, uh, how men are not expected to have things, the freedom of not carrying anything and not having anything in your hands. Um, only only carrying what you need, like in your pockets. Of course, women's clothes have dreadful pockets. That's part of the problem is that you can't fit anything in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, there's there's just so so much so much about it. It's 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 sort of taken up a lot of my mental space this week thinking about it. <laughs> Bill, I'll just let, go wherever you want. Yeah, and it is so gendered. I think Lisa Miller is a great writer. By the way, I like her stuff a lot, and, and I thought she made this very interesting. Um, I can't remember if she actually uses this word or not, but I was thinking about the word unencumbered. And what an interesting word that really is because it operates on a lot of different levels. You can be unencumbered physically, but it's also related to being unencumbered mentally and being unencumbered in terms of, well, I've got people who do that for me. And it is – this is such a gendered thing and I, and I do think it's, it's really – it's really interesting how that plays out. At one point in the article, she talks about 
men who say to the women that they're with, you know, can you carry this for me? Or, or oh, babe, are and, you going to bring your purse? Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and I have to admit to doing that myself. It's a common phrase. I hate carrying a wallet. It's a common phrase in my home. Lore, can you carry my wallet for me? Well, yeah. And so that's the unencumbered. Um, and I would be curious to see Susan's pers- perspective on this seems to be Somebody like a woman is going to help me. If I need a Band-Aid, there's going to be a woman who has Mm -hmm. one. I don't have to take it myself. Mm -hmm. Or if I need to charge my phone or if I need something to eat or a mint or whatever, there's going to be a woman there that's going to take care of it. I, I want to hear what say? Susan says too. I do want to say there may be a class aspect to that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether it was true. It may have been apocryphal. It was always said that the Kennedys didn't carry money, didn't really carry anything with them. There would be somebody else, you know, uh, not yeah. even necessarily a wife. Yeah. In fact, apparently frequently yeah. not a wife. But there would be somebody else, a, 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 an aide or somebody like that who would have the money, who would pay for the meal, whatever. I'm thinking of the character on Veep. Uh, was it Gary? Who used to carry right. all of yeah. Selena yeah. Meyer's yeah. stuff for her? Exactly. You have a body yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, – Men will actually police each other about this too. Like if, if a man does carry a bag of some kind, other men will give him the business for it. Um, so men will, will actually go after one another to say, hey, you must be carrying a purse and they'll, they'll police each other that Feminize, way. Yeah, it must yes. be a, it's a feminizing Exactly, thing, exactly. Yeah. The idea that you have something, that you're carrying things with you unless you do it in like an approved kind of way. Like maybe you have a backpack or I don't know, you're carrying a skull that has something, <laughs> something really massive. That's what I do. Yeah. I, carry it, I have a raccoon skull that I carry things <laughs> in. No, I actually have a very nice to me bag that I bring to work every day and I bring it when I travel. I wouldn't bring it, you know, out uh, of an evening, you know, out for drinks or something like that. I, I just want to make a couple of points about this. I think one of the other things that's going on here, and I'm sure it's just loaded with all kinds of sexism and stuff like that. Like one reason that the pockets aren't any good, Susan, is because women's clothes are supposed to have kind of a nice line to them. They really don't want you putting big George Costanza-sized <laughs> wallets, you right. know, in, in these nice things. Where Whereas men, some men anyway, allow themselves and kind of are allowed to look like dorks. Uh, and so I, I get made fun of by my significant, significant other if I wear cargo shorts, which is like the ultimate thing where you can wear – you, but you can put a lot of cargo in them. That's why they're yeah. called yeah. cargo shorts. And even the pants I'm wearing now, which are made by Prana, they have like four pockets you know, and they zip up. And that is regarded by my more fashion-forward significant other as, as pretty dorky. On the other hand – I think the other thing we all do seek is unfetteredness, right? The problem with the shoulder bag, it's on your shoulder and it's obstructing the movement of one of your arms and stuff like that. I'm going to get in so much trouble for telling this story, that I, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Yay. So a couple of years ago, we're walking around Soho and uh, so a certain person who's walking around Soho with me – what she wants is she doesn't want to be carrying a, a shoulder bag most of the time. And so we're going in all these very shishi – uh, Soho stores, like, you know, there's the Soho coach outlet. And she's describing what she wants to these somewhat baffled salespeople. And my job eventually is to say, she wants a fanny pack, but she doesn't want to say that word. Um, and <clears throat> so anyway, in the last two years, fanny packs have been turned into belt bags. They're much more acceptable. They're much more – and now coach – Coach now sells a whole line of belt bags. And it turns out my significant other was completely right. That's the direction things are going in. And you can wear that without breaking the at least the kind of side lines of your outfit. And, and there are some ones that are, I guess, pretty nice looking. So that may be 
you know, where it all ends. I don't know. Like a utility belt, basically. Yeah. Like Batman's <laughs> See, utility belt. That's, that's yeah, why not? Sure. Not, not really I, what a fashion forward that. person wants, but. I also want to make sure we get in here the really interesting turn she takes at the end of the article mm-hmm. where she starts talking about public relations as a woman's mostly profession, mostly cleaning up the messes that men have made. And then she talks about the people in the Trump White yes. House, um, the political communication people who had been tasked with doing that. And I and I just love how that's where she she kind of ends this whole reflection on this. Although to be fair, they did try Scaramucci and he just wasn't any good at it. Um, so, Three days. But um, it also made me think about self-care, you know, like taking care, you know, taking care of yourself. Like, yes, you're you can take care of other people by carrying paper towels in your purse, but you're also taking care of yourself of your own needs, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes that is something that men or certain politicians or whatever just can't do on their own, you know. So there's something Agreed. powerful uh, about carrying things as well as sort of abdicating power All right. to take care of others. I'm going to leapfrog over one of our topics, so I'm going to squeeze one more topic in before we're done. Uh, this is a topic entirely based on a Twitter thread, although I don't think that that necessarily obviates its usefulness. Or I mean, I think that's one of the many ways that people compose and communicate their thoughts these days. It might even be a more you know, fluid one than other ways at this point. So uh, this was uh, someone tweeting about the fact that he knows another couple uh, where the couple, the ma- presumably married couple, um, do they do not have a designated side of the bed for each of them. They get into bed every night and it's kind of a surprise uh, which side uh, each person is going to wind up on. And this turned into a long, long stream of not only this commenter's comments about it, but everybody chiming in and marveling or not marveling. So I'm just going to maybe just go around the table here. I'll start with you, Susan. And uh, What did you make of all this? These people who do this, who switch sides all the time, they're aliens. I (laughs) I cannot imagine doing this. Um, It would feel so foreign to me to be on the other side of the bed. Um, And it was sort of random the way that uh, my wife and I sort of figured out which side we were going to be on. I think it was that I I was happier being close to the wall in our tiny apartment that we lived in. But so she, it, is she on the murder side? Right. So she can she can get out. Well, she can get out, but will she get so that one oh, of the things, one of the she murdered first. Murdered. If you're yeah. close to the door, you get murdered first. So yes, yes, you she can is. probably jump out the window. Well, there was a wall there, so I'd uh, be next. Okay. Speaking of Tarantino movies. Right. Speaking of, uh, yes. Uh, it's okay. Jeff Stein from the Washington Post, by the way, who got all this thing going. Uh, a- any final thoughts about this before I? I it just shows us a. I don't know. It's sleep is one of those things where our habits seem like they're hardest to break. Right. All right, Irene. Um, yeah, my partner and I definitely both sleep on the same side. You know, the, the a consistent side. Um, but when I read the article, I thought, "Wow, you know, we're in such a rut. This is horrible." You know, part, though I part of it is I have my stuff on my side. He has his stuff on his side. But it made me want to say, like, wow, wouldn't it be exciting to switch places? Let's try it. That's West Hartford excitement. We're going to switch sides <laughs> exactly. of the bed. But, um, exactly. I, can I just ask, because I, I, I told you mine, so now you have to tell me yours, but you have to tell me yours on the air. So uh, you're with somebody now, but you were married before that. Were you on the same side of the bed? Have you maintained that side of the bed? No. Ah. I think when I was married, um, it was, there, there was more of a random back and forth who's going to be on which side. Oh, really? Side. So you did yeah, live that crazy life. I have to life. say, I lived that crazy life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Bill. Yeah, I'm sorry. I have to still be on the side of that's just, you know, doesn't make any sense at all to me. Um, 
I think there needs to be a well-funded study to see what percentage of the population would not just sleep on the same side. And I think it would be a very, very small number because we are territorial creatures. You know, even when we come in here, I know people have certain preferences about what seats they want to sit in. And um, it would just – it would totally discombobulate me to be on the other side. I don't even know if I could fall asleep. Let's say, uh, let me ask you this. If you and your wife are sitting on the couch watching television, are you, do you have designated sides of the couch you sit on too? We, uh, I lay on a couch and she sits ah. in a big easy chair. So, um, We're sitting at dinner at your table, wherever you eat, you sit hmm. in the same seat. Yeah, that's assuming that we actually sit while we eat. Right. So, I, you know, I can actually think of, you know, as you're talking, I started realizing it, the, the practical argument for doing this crazy, you know, switching sides things is a little bit like rotating tires, right? I mean, the bed kind of probably, you know, the bed wears a little more evenly and, you know, if one person's a lot heavier than the other. You're supposed to flip your mattress, right? Flip your mattress. I guess that's how you you'd rotate the tires. Yeah, I, I, I've consistently throughout my life uh, in – uh, the my marriage and my long term relationship uh, after my marriage it's exactly the same on on the same side of the bed and it really feels a little bit ordained too I mean it feels like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be uh, and 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 who knows who decided that but some some minor god you know <laughs> who decides these things says no you're going to be over on that side uh, I, I can't imagine going on it would feel like a violation too of her space at this point if I suddenly said oh I'm going to mm-hmm. be I'm going to be sleeping on this side tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so scientists, funny. there's yeah. grant money out there for right. this if the yeah, National well Academy funded. of Sciences right. is listening. <laughs> That's unilateral uh, aggression. Uh, all right. So we have to take a break here, so we'll have time to recommend things. So why don't we do that? I don't carry a purse. My flamethrower wouldn't fit in it anyway. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, with help from me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Jesse Steinmetz, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Sam Wanamaker. On Monday, our show looks at the religious movement behind Mariana Williamson. And now... Back to Colin. So uh, I should also say that uh, Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, does not carry a purse of any kind. And uh, I, I haven't ever thought about it. She pointed this out today and I realized, yes, if you – when we see her out in the world, she doesn't have anything like that. If she she has, has pockets? No, I think she like carries like a wallet in her hand or something. I don't know. Wow. But she's not like the rest of us. Um, all right. So um, let's uh, do, make some recommendations. Bill, why don't you get us going? Okay, I want to uh, endorse two books, uh, one fiction, one nonfiction. Uh, the fiction, the novel is a debut novel by a journalist named Taffy uh, Brodesser Ackner. Oh, it's a hyphenated it. name, Brodesser Ackner, called Fleischman is in Trouble. It's about a um, person going through a divorce and all the emotions. Uh, that that accompany that. It's one of those novels that's told from multiple perspectives, which I really, really like. And one reviewer said it's like a Philip Roth novel if Philip Roth actually knew anything about women. <laughs> <laughs> and the other is uh, nonfiction. It's a book called Democracy and Truth, A Short History by Sophia Rosenfeld. 
I think this is highly, highly valuable. Somehow in less than 200 pages, she goes back to uh, the American Revolution all the way to the current uh, circumstances that we find ourselves living in and takes up this question of what is the relationship of truth to democracy and how that has always been a very tenuous relationship. But there is also simultaneously something very different about what's happening right now. And I think she – it's really – it's like I say, it's less than 200 pages, but I think it's a tour de force. All right. Say the names, uh, the titles and authors of each book again. Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. And Democracy and Truth, A Short History by Sophia Rosenfeld. All right. Every week I get emailed. What was the name of the book? All right. So Irene Papoulos. Okay. Speaking of books, um, I read a book that has been on my shelf for a couple of years um, and I hadn't read it. And then I found out that George Clooney was producing a version of it for HBO. So that stimulated me to read it. It's a book about um, the murder of a bishop in Guatemala. And somebody had told me it was a page turner, but I thought, how could a book like that, a nonfiction book like that, be a page turner? It is a page turner. It's by Francisco Goldman, who teaches um, some some, uh, half the year at Trinity College uh, and has written a bunch of novels that are interesting. But this book is called The Art of Political Murder. And if you're at all interested in um, Guatemala, how things work, and and a very well-written page-turner of a book about a murder, I highly recommend it. And it's going to be on HBO, produced by George Clooney soon. Um, It's really good. All right. The Art of Political Murder by Francisco Goldman. Uh, Susan Bigelow. So I um, I want to endorse a Canadian TV show. Uh, that has just recently made it to Hulu in this country, uh, Letter Kenny. Um, it is a show about this little town in rural Ontario uh, called Letter Kenny, and it's it is hilarious. It has got like the best deadpan humor. That is very very Canadian. There's hockey in it, so that's why I got interested because mm-hmm. that's what I love. Um, but also. There's just a lot of really great wordplay and strange turns of phrase. Um, it's very, very funny. So there's there's lots of clips on YouTube if you want to just check it out. Uh, like, again, it's called Letter Kenny, all one word. Um, very funny Canadian TV. This is like the world we live in. I think we just got rid of Hulu, and now you're making me want to get Hulu again. <laughs> this is we talked about this a week or two ago. All right, so you've left me way too much time here, but I'll do what I can. Um, okay, so I, I guess the first thing that I'm going to I'll do a book too, but my books are not as uh, high faluting uh, as uh, everybody else's. This is your beach read. This is your cheesy summer novel, uh, and it's a good summer novel because, uh, the t- as the title suggests, there's a lot of coldness in it. It's called The Deep Deep Snow by Brian Freeman. I would especially recommend the Audible version. Uh, I, apparently at the end of the week after reading all the stuff for this show, I'm too tired to read and hold the book. So, but I can listen to a book. And, and the woman who's doing uh, the reading is just terrific uh, in this Audible version. She does a really great job. It takes place somewhere. I don't know if they ever explain whether we're in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan or we're in northern Minnesota or someplace like that. Small town, uh, disappearance of a child. But it really is handled in a very, very interesting way. And there's a lot of very interesting, very human subplots. Uh, It uh, makes no pretense at being great fiction, but sometimes in the summer uh, you just want something like that. So The Deep, Deep Snow by Brian Freeman. If you're like a really smart person with lots of 
you know, mental capacity to take on new challenges. Read one of the books suggested by Irene and Bill. Uh, but if you're like me, uh, this will probably do. Uh, and then I'll, I'll take a minute or two just to talk about one of the performers. Uh, I, I've alluded to her earlier, but one of the performers uh, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Her name is Margaret Qualley. She is the uh, daughter of Andy McDowell. I would say based this is sort of a mean thing to say, but based on early evidence, she's a much better actress than her mother. Uh, and uh, she was in The Leftovers. Uh, and But most notably, and I think I've endorsed this in the past, uh, but <clears> – <throat> She was in Fosse Verdon, which was this uh, FX series about Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon, which I really didn't want to watch that much because I don't – I never liked Bob Fosse as a person and I found all that jazz to be kind of an unbearable movie. I didn't want to watch this and, and I, I did. I did watch it. Michelle Williams gives this just knockout performance as Gwen Verdon. Michelle Williams is as good an actor as there is working today. She's just mind-boggling and Sam Rockwell's pretty good as Bob Fosse. But anyway, and Ryan King, who's kind of the young woman – who comes along more at the end of Fosse's life and kind of makes a place for herself in this complicated uh, relationship between Fosse and Verdon is played by this young actress, uh, Margaret Qualley, who we saw we see in uh, Once Upon a Time in America in a very different role. She is part of the Manson family. Uh, she's, uh, I think her name is Pussycat in this film. Uh, she is um, presided over uh, by this mater familias. Uh, this is in Once Upon a Time in America. That is Lena Dunham, uh, who's kind of... Uh, amusingly running, you know, this group of horrible zombie-like uh, young women. But anyway, Margaret Qualley is going to be a big, big deal. She's going to do great things. But I would really recommend going back and watching uh, Fosse Verdon. If you have any interest at all, uh, any capacity at all to kind of tolerate uh, a long, uh, convoluted Broadway story, uh, it, it's a really good one. All right. So thanks to these terrific guests. Uh, and thanks uh, uh, also to Jonathan and McNichol for getting things uh, together for us. But uh, thank you very much for coming today, Irene Papoulis, Bill Usman, and Susan Bigelow. We'll be back on Monday, and we are going to tell you about A Course in Miracles, which is uh, the spiritual movement that birthed Marianne Williamson, or one could argue that Marianne Williams Williamson has been St. Paul to the Jesus uh, of A Course in Miracles. Jesus, by the way, is not uninvolved in A Course in Miracles. But that's a long story to tell. <laughs>